0: amen well good morning church as we begin this morning i want to encourage you to think of your favorite gospel story any story from the gospels any story that involves jesus perhaps think about that for a moment you got it you know which one it is anybody bold enough to shout out their favorite gospel story this is the audience participation portion of the sermon so this is your chance you want to holler something out anybody got a favorite gospel story What's that? Knowing the Ark, great. Old Testament, reaching back. Anybody else? Jesus healing at the at, amen, the healings. Somebody else, one more. Esther, very good. Those are all wonderful stories. Those are some of my favorites too, but I don't have a sermon uh, prepared for those stories, so I'm gonna share one of my favorite uh, gospel stories. You might have figured out where this was going. Um, One of my favorites, and there are many, but one of my favorite stories of Jesus is the woman at the well. And uh, it comes in John chapter 4. So if you want to start turning to John chapter 4, we're going to camp out there today. For those of you that uh, have been, you know, getting calluses on your fingers, flipping around all the scriptures that we've had the last four weeks in our kingdom uh, economics series. Today, I've got good news for you. We're going to camp out in John chapter 4. And so if you need a Bible, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you. You can turn to page 1652 in those blue hardcover Bibles, or you can find this in your own Bible uh, or on uh, a digital device. Those of you are joining us online, we're going to have the scriptures on the screen behind me. Uh, but just as you're turning there, One of the things that I love about this story is the way that Jesus interacts with this woman and all the symbolism and all the the richness of of the contrast. You see, in John chapter 3, he has a a conversation with a wealthy, prominent, male Jewish leader, Nicodemus, with the famous interaction there where Nicodemus comes to him at night. And then on the flip side, in John chapter 4, just as soon as you turn the page, now he's interacting with a Samaritan woman at a well in the daytime, and and this Nicodemus couldn't be any farther from this Samaritan woman. And yet you see Jesus interacting with both of them in a really deeply profound way. And I just love that about it. But one of my very favorite things in all the world is a new insight on a favorite Bible story, one that you've read, that you've studied, in my case, preached on multiple times, and then something new comes up out of that, and you see something new, and so I'm excited to share one because I got one of those recently on this story, and it sparked some ideas for this series and for this message uh, that I'm pretty excited about. We're starting a new series titled Kingdom Mission. If you've been with us for most of the year, you know that we've been focusing on the kingdom a lot starting way back in January and pretty much all the way through. You might say we pushed pause on that or it took a timeout for the God Is series, but really we're just talking about what the king is like because God is the king of the kingdom. And so we just finished Kingdom Economics. We're steamrolling into Kingdom Mission where we're going to have a three-week series on God's mission in this world. And as that little sermon bumper powerfully communicates, God is a sending God. That's what it means to be on mission. It means to be sent and the Apostles' Creed that we recited between the first and second song this morning, an apostle is a sent one. That's what it means. It means one who has been sent and who has, has accepted the mission. And so today and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about the kingdom mission. And it's interesting because we just finished that kingdom economics. I want to talk about that in a minute. Uh, but I want to give you a heads up of what's coming Because starting September 10th, we're going to begin our big fall series. The last several years, we've had a big fall series. And this one is going to be titled Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which is a book, a resource, a study that you may have heard something about. It's been around for a while. I had the privilege of spending my sabbatical time last year going through the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality uh, resources, reading the book, doing the workbook, watching the videos that went with that and it was deeply profound and I walked away from that saying we have to do this at Linwood and I think that this study that Emotionally Healthy Spirituality has the potential to be one of the most significant sermon series we've done since I've been here. Might be the most significant, we'll see, time will tell. And what you put into it is going to determine in a great deal what you get out of it. But I would strongly encourage you to be thinking of that, to be praying for that, because really this series, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, is for everybody with a soul. So if you have a soul, this series is for you. And I would even go so far as to say and to make the bold claim that if you heard that title and you said, that's, that's not for me, it's definitely for you. It's definitely for you. And so we're going to have groups. We're going to have opportunities for you to engage in fellowship and community as you work through this. There are going to be books that will be available where you can read the book. You can do the workbook. There's videos that go with that. There's even a day-by-day devotional. So however you want to engage, uh, I would encourage you to start making plans for that. We even have a couple of groups that are, are open that you can sign up for now. And let us know that you want to be a part of it. There'll be a Sunday morning group uh, that Greg Desitel leads at 1030 on Sunday morning, starting on the 10th of September. If you want to be a part of that group, watch the video together, do the discussion questions together, learn and grow together. It's currently set for room, room 114. I'm hoping that it outgrews grows room 114. We have to move it to another room. Um, We also have a Wednesday night offering for that starting on September 20th. Nate and Sherry Rigg are going to offer a Wednesday evening meeting for Emotionally Healthy Spirituality to go through that group together. So start making plans. Start thinking about that. Start praying for that because it's not just for you. It's also for anyone you would invite. If you know people that have a soul, (laughs) they could be really able to benefit from this. And so I would encourage you, and maybe you choose to come and to show up and then to share what you learn with somebody in your life that could really benefit from it. So I want to encourage you with that. That's a a preview of what's coming up, a heads up that we'll be doing that and starting that series on September 10th. But back to Kingdom Mission, back to the task at hand, back to what we are talking about today. The subtitle of this series is Making the Kingdom Mission Our Mission, Making the Kingdom Mission your mission, that God has a mission in this world. And if he is our God, if he is King of kings and Lord of lords, if he's on the throne of our lives, then his mission is our mission. So how do we make the kingdom mission our mission? And this series flows out of Kingdom Economics pretty well, better than I thought it would, honestly, especially the way that series ended last week, as we talked about reaching a place of financial maturity in the biblical sense. That's where we've created margin, and now we have come to God and we have asked God to show us what He wants us to do with our margin, what He wants us to do with what we have over what we need. And we talked about this idea that maturity is when our heart and our habits align with our hope for the future. And our hope for the future is that everyone would hear the good news and respond in faith to it. And so we can choose to invest our margin strategically into the mission that God has in this world. Now, that subtitle, Making the Kingdom Mission Our Mission, I'm going to approach it from three separate areas. The first that we'll look at today is having eyes to see. Eyes to see as God sees. Next week we'll talk about having ears to hear. Jesus said this often at the end of a parable. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then the final week, we'll get to hear from the team that went to Zambia for the Love Choma project with our partner Poetis in Zambia. And they are going to share about having hands to do and feet to go. And I got this idea from a powerful, powerful poem that had a real impact on me. It was written by Teresa of Avila centuries ago. And yet it still rings true today. It rings true in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, or wherever you're watching online from. It rings true when she says these words Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Do you realize to be the hands and feet of Christ is part of God's mission in this world, that everyone who names the name of Christ, everyone who says he is my Lord, he is my king, would be marching to the same beat, the kingdom mission, going where he sends us, doing what he has asked us to do, saying what he has asked us to, see, to say, and seeing the world through his eyes. And so that's the setup, that's the context for uh, this series and having eyes to see today. If you're in John chapter 4, if you're familiar with the story, then you know the context here. We're not going to do the whole thing. One of the things I love about John and one of the things I love about this story is that John goes into much greater detail with his story. Some of his stories are entire chapters in lengthy chapters. And so we're not going to read through this. I'm going to summarize it for you, and then we're going to dive into the point that I really want to focus on. But the context here is that Jesus and his disciples have left Galilee in the north and are making their way south. And Typically, what a Jew uh, would do in this case would be to go across the northern border of Samaria and down the Jordan on the other side of the Jordan so that they didn't even have to set foot in Samaria, right? But Jesus says, no, we're going through Samaria. And so they go through Samaria and they stop outside of a village that's named as Sychar, which is significant in that it's the location of Jacob's well, the well that Jacob dug in the promised land. And Jesus has a conversation with a woman who comes out to draw water, and that's why we call this story the story of the woman at the well, because there's a woman and a well. It's a pretty straight line uh, from the context to why the story has its name. Now, we're told early in this that the disciples go into town to buy food, but Jesus rests By the well, I think he had a divine appointment with this lady who comes out at midday, which is significant because typically you would go, all the women would go together early in the morning before it got warm, and that's when they would draw their water, but she doesn't go with them. And we find out why in a little while. And Jesus asks her for a drink, which breaks all kinds of social and cultural taboos. And she even calls this to attention. She says, why are you asking me for a drink? You know, you're a Jewish man. And I'm a Samaritan woman. We couldn't be much farther apart. And yet you ask me for a drink? And Jesus says, well, actually, if you knew who was standing before you, you'd ask me and I would give you living water. And she says, that that sounds like a pretty good idea. I I would like some of that water, so I don't have to come here and draw water anymore. I don't have to come out in the middle of the day and lug this water back. I could, yeah, give me some of that. And so he says, you know, go call your husband. Give him some too. She says, well, I don't have a husband. And he says, yeah, you're right. When you say you don't have a husband, you've had five. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. And suddenly she realizes he knows things about her he couldn't possibly know. And she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. She tries to change the subject a little bit. And she engages Jesus in a little debate about, where we should worship. You see, the Jews say that we should worship in Jerusalem, but the Samaritans say we should worship in Samaria, and Jesus doesn't really engage the debate. He says, you know, worship isn't really about location, and a time is coming when you'll worship in spirit and in truth, and it won't really matter where you are. And then she said, well, when the Messiah comes, he'll show us these things. He says, I'm he. I am the Messiah. And that's where we pick up the story, and that's what I want to focus on next, verses 27 through 42. Let's look at that first paragraph, verse 27 through 30. Right after Jesus says He is the disciples, John writes this, Just then His disciples returned and were surprised to find Him talking with a woman. But no one asked, What do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ, the Messiah? And they came out of the town, and they made their way toward him. So I think it's significant that the disciples are surprised, but they remain silent. Whether that's deference or whether it's just that awkward tension, there's an elephant in the room, are we going to say anything about it or not? Why is Jesus talking to this Samaritan woman? But they don't say anything, and it underscores the cultural and the social tension that was existing in this conversation and in this setting. But next we're told that the woman leaves in a hurry and goes back to town, and we know she was in a hurry because water jars were not cheap, okay? This wasn't just a five-gallon bucket that you could pick up at the home improvement store of your choice for five dollars, or maybe they're ten now, I don't know. But these were expensive, and they were heavy. And so she leaves it behind so that she can get to town quickly. She doesn't want to have to labor to get it there. Because she'd had an encounter with Jesus, and now she had something to say. Don't miss that. She had an encounter with Jesus, and now she had something to say. She leaves her water jar behind, and she hustles back to town. Now, the next paragraph or so is what I like to call a new episode of the disciples' reality TV show. It's titled Adventures in Missing the Point. And the disciples take us into episodes of this show on a regular basis throughout the gospel. They're just always missing the point. Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified in in just a short while. And they say, well, which one of us is the greatest? adventures and missing the point they come out here and instead of asking and and entering into this teachable moment with Jesus why are you talking to her they say rabbi eat something (laughs) see they brought him food their mission was to go into town and get food and they had brought food back to Jesus but he said to them I have food that you know nothing about and so they say to each other not to him of course they say to each other could someone else have brought him food Someone besides us. And so Jesus leans in and says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I just had a conversation, a divine appointment with a woman who desperately needs to know that the Messiah has come. I've been nourished by doing God's will. That's what he's saying. He's been on mission for God. He's been in the kingdom mission, and that has nourished his soul. And then he goes on to say, do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. Even now, the reaper draws his wages. Even now, he he harvests the crop for eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. He's saying, man, this kingdom thing is taken off. It's not going to be this long delay anymore like your, your sowing and reaping cycle that you're used to. Sowing and reaping are going to take place at the same time. You're going to actually reap what you did not sow. Which is interesting language because they said the same thing when the, when the people of Israel were going into the promised land the first time. He said, you're going to harvest fields you did not plant. You're going to harvest crops that you did not tend. You're going to experience the abundance. And, and Jesus is saying the same type of thing is happening here. There's been prophets. There's been leaders. There's been those who have been faithful to God, who have spoken the word of God, and now is the appointed time. And there's no longer this long delay between sowing and reaping, between planting and harvesting. But don't miss what he says in verse 35. That second phrase there, I tell you, open your eyes. Have eyes to see and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. One commentary Some summarize this or suggested that maybe he said there's literally an approaching crowd from this nearby town that's coming. That's the harvest that's coming because we're told that the woman went and she brought people back. And in the next couple of lines, we'll see that interaction. And I think he's basically saying, you guys missed it. You missed it. Whether they were blinded by those cultural or social prejudices or maybe it was something else. Dr. Alicia Schole, who I've quoted many times, her writings are just phenomenal. She offers another perspective on what Jesus is getting at here, something deeper that the disciples had never even looked, never even considered bringing people back to Jesus at the well. They only brought food back to Jesus at the well. And she suggests that even though a dozen grown men had gone into town and had interacted with likely dozens of people, buying food, buying this, buying that, talking about the weather, talking about what's going on, that not one of them shared that the Messiah was out at the well on the edge of town. And she says, like us, like many of us, they viewed evangelism as an event. And then when it's time for the event, then we'll go and evangelize, but when it's not time for the event, we're just going to go about our business and try to get in and get out as fast as we can. I've heard it said before that many Christians view the world kind of like a public bathroom. Get in, get out as quickly as you can without touching anything. And yet we miss an opportunity if we view evangelism as an event, something that you do sometimes but not always, something that has parameters around it. And in the following verses, the final verses of this passage, we see someone who did not miss it. We see someone who seized the moment, who did not view evangelism as events. She hurried back to town and immediately shared the news. And so in verse 39, we read that many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two more days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So much going on here. Because this woman did not view evangelism as an event. She had an encounter with Jesus, and she had to tell somebody. You see, evangelism isn't an event. It's a lifestyle. It's something that we do naturally as we live our lives in the world. And her first inclination after this encounter with Jesus was to go and tell people about it. And I wonder, when was the last time you had an encounter with Jesus and you had to tell somebody about it? When was that for you? Has it been days or weeks or months? Has it been years? I heard some really good feedback from the 24 hours of prayer. People said, man, that was powerful. One person said that was the fastest 40 minutes of my life when they had a a dedicated block of time for prayer. Another person said that was the most amazing experience I've had in some time. And I think when we have these encounters with Jesus, we have to tell somebody about it. We have to share it. We have to share what he has done for us. That's what a witness is. It's somebody who tells what they've seen and heard, that they had eyes to see and ears to hear. And as a result of her going and sharing what she had seen and heard, the encounter that she had had, and you might say, well, she kind of exaggerated. He didn't tell her everything she'd ever done. Well, we might have just got the cliff notes of this, ver- this story. Maybe there was more to it. Or maybe she felt so seen, so known, so understood, so accepted by the Messiah, that she couldn't help but share it. Come see the man who talked with me, who looked me in the eyes, who knew my story, and was willing to interact with me and be seen interacting with me. And as a result, we're told, many believed. And she brought more people to Jesus, and then they brought Jesus to the village. And even more people believed. Do You see what happened. She brought people to Jesus. Those people wanted to bring Jesus back to the village. And it grew. And there's like this mass conversion. There's revival in Sychar. Who knew? Do you think that was on the docket when the disciples woke up that morning? I bet not. And I love what they say in verse 42. Not just that we no longer believe because of what you said. Now we have heard... For ourselves, And we know, it's what they say next, that this man really is the Savior of the world. Not just the Savior of the Jews. And in God's, John's Gospel, this is the first time that we see an indication that Jesus' ministry goes beyond the Jewish people. And it's these Samaritans that recognize that he is the Savior of the world, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And he came to them, too. And so our bottom line today, as we kick this series off, is that the kingdom mission is a global mission. The kingdom mission is a global mission, and global is significant because global means around the corner, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, and around the world. It means over your backyard fence, And it means over the Atlantic or over the Pacific, wherever God would send you, whether that's here in town or regionally or nationally or internationally, that the kingdom mission is a global mission. And I find it very interesting in the book of Acts, after the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ, that Samaria is the first cross-cultural mission field. That Jesus tells them in Acts 1.8, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it's really clear as you read Acts, they got, the disciples have no problem with Jerusalem and Judea. They get after that right away. But it's not until Acts chapter 8 and a wave of persecution breaks out that they actually go out to Samaria. And it takes even longer to get to the ends of the earth. It, they struggled a little bit to take that next step. But Jesus really is the savior of the world, the whole world. And here's the kingdom mission, here's the kingdom vision. If we accomplish the kingdom mission, here's what it looks like. It looks like every single person who has ever lived reciting the apostles' creed that we recited this morning. I had a vision, I got moved, I got tears as we were reciting that Apostles' Creed, and who we believe Jesus is as his followers. Well, the kingdom vision is that everyone believes that. That's the kingdom mission, is that none would perish. That's what we're told in the New Testament, is that God desires that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance, that all would turn from their sin, turn to God, and believe him. And that means that's the people that look like us, and those that don't look like us. Those who act like us and those who don't act like us. Those who live like us and those who don't live like us. Those who talk like us and those who don't talk like us. They're all part of the kingdom mission. It's a global mission. This even includes not just those we like, but those we don't like. Not just the people who like us, but the people who don't like us. Whether we have enemies in this world, whether those are political or some other kind, that the kingdom mission is a global mission. And we see that very clearly here. And this is why. This is why we have mission partnerships. This is why we have a missions map out there in the lobby. This is why we give significantly substantially to missions over a quarter of every dollar that comes into linwood goes back out through missions partnerships through our wesleyan assessments that go to build up the church here in america and around the world and and into our educational institutions and we're delighted to do that to make those investments we as a church have created margin so we don't need every dime that comes in for our operations and we have asked god what do you want us to do with that margin and we strategically invest it into the kingdom. This is why we have those partnerships. In Sioux Falls, in our region, nationally and globally, that's our Acts 1-8. Sioux Falls is our Jerusalem. Our region is our Judea. Our country is our Samaria. There are people in America that are very, very different than people in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Can I get an amen? We were talking about this last night, like you go to certain parts of the country, and it's incredibly diverse. And people who don't look like us, talk like us, think like us, act like us in almost any way other than maybe the language that they speak, and even that is becoming increasingly diverse. And so we have these concentric circles, and we are strategically investing in the kingdom of God in each of these eccentric circles. And I'm excited to share with you a new partnership today, and and the reason that we're entering into this new partnership with the Africa Wesleyan University College in Zambia is that God's kingdom mission is a global mission. And so I'm excited to introduce Henry Smith to you. He's going to be joining me on stage in just a moment. While he's making his way up here, I also want you to hear a greeting from our partner church pastor. His name is Pastor Worthy, and he's at Kubwata Church in Lusaka, Zambia. Now Kubwata Church is a very influential church, and we are thrilled to be in a church-to-church partnership with this congregation for the benefit of the African Wesleyan University. And so take a look at this greeting and then we'll get set up over here.
1: Greetings to you in the name of the Lord. This is Levran Winderworth, the pastor of Pilgrim Wesleyan Church here in Lusaka Kawata Central. So thank you so much. We are excited to partner with you as a church uh, here in Kabwata. And as a church, Kawata Pilgrim Mozillian Church is committed uh, to nurturing and growing believers in their spiritual lives. We have a vision that we need to we need to uh, build up believers who are transformed, spirit-filled, and be able to serve the Lord. Our mission is to see that people are discipled. We reach out, we evangelize. That is what our mission is as a church. We are so excited, Pastor Mark, would love to send our greetings to you together with the church uh, in Linwood, South Dakota of the USA. We are very excited to hear that you are ready to partner together with us in this mission of bringing the Wesleyan University to reality. And we believe that together we can do that. Together we can bring the, the university reality as a church we are so excited we are so happy to hear about you we are so excited about the university and we are ready to do to, to work together with you we are ready to work give and pray for the church, for the university, uh, so that we can see the work come to pass. We are excited to see you very soon as you come to visit Zambia, specifically the African Wesleyan University. We are ready to work together with you as we together nature and build lives for the glory of God. Thank you so much, and may God bless you. Amen.
0: Amen, yes. I love his excitement and his enthusiasm, and I love that Dr. Henry Smith is with us today. Henry is a colleague of Alfred Colombo, who has been to Linwood many times, has shared with us extensively over several decades, and together they are working on the Africa Wesleyan University College in Zambia. So, uh, Dr. Smith, I know you want me to call you Henry, so I'm gonna call you Henry from this point (laughs) on, and all of you should call him Henry as well. But can you give us what might be called like an elevator speech, Uh, summarizing sort of the history of the development, the hopes and dreams of the Africa University, the Wesleyan University there.
2: Oh, I'm excited to do that. But first I want to thank you for inviting me here. Alfred Colombo sends his greetings and his apologies for not being able to come. He was asked to be in the DRC, the Congo, to do uh, some work there and couldn't come, but thank you. And thank you to, to Rick and Kathy for uh, hosting me in their home and for all the work that you do to make this happen. One of the excitement for me is to actually meet my former students when I was president of Indiana Western University. I know that I, I, I met with Zach, saw his uh, family last night, and met with Dave, Dave uh, Hopewell, I think. Uh, not long ago, and so it's still great to to be here. I feel like I know some of you, even though I haven't seen you before, so thank you for having me here. So, a quick elevator speech. You know, I'm on the 20th floor, getting ready to come down to the lower level. So, real quick, Alfred Colombo has had a dream of having a university, a Christian Wesleyan University, in Zambia for many years. He established a task force to work on it. For a number of years, I was consulting. Uh, And we are working together now, and I have the role of principal, which is the president-elect, to actually help that university begin. And we are going to start it an hour north of Livingstone Falls in Zimba, where the Wesleyans have a hospital. You know, the Wesleyans established hospitals, 74 primary and secondary uh, schools. They also started uh, a Bible college, so they had a real influence. Over 500 Wesleyan churches in the nation of Zambia. And so that's what I'm trying to do to actually help them start the university. And I'm hoping that some of them, my background as a university president and also as an, uh, an evaluator for their accrediting group will help us make that happen. So that's it in a nutshell. I'm on the first floor now.
0: <laughs> Very good. Well, as we walk through the lobby then of this uh, hypothetical journey, what would you say are some of the distinctives of the African Wesleyan, Africa Wesleyan? I keep saying African, but it's Africa, Africa, Africa Wesleyan University.
2: First of all, we are going to have mission-fit credentialed faculty who teach. You know, that's the heart of it all. I've talked to other presidents who, over time, have seen their institution drift. And when I was president of Indiana Wesleyan, I interviewed every single faculty member and staff at the the director level to make sure they were mission-fit as well as academically qualified. So, mission-fit and academically qualified faculty. We also want to have a safe campus. In in Zambia, we'll put walls around the campus, as many of you know. I know that Rick just recently, along with several people in the church, I went to Zambia and have helped with some wall building. We'll build that around that. We also are going to have the students work for their scholarships. That's not something foreign to them. They're open and ready to do that. So as churches begin to provide scholarships, they'll work for those scholarships. Uh, We also want the, the university to start with education, with nursing, midwifery, and also with theology. We'll continue to have our Bible college. But those distinctives are ones that we believe will have a Christian university in Africa just an hour north of International Airport in Livingstone, where the seven Bible colleges throughout Africa from the West Coast to the East Coast and others will come and send their students to Africa Wesleyan
0: University. Very good. Well, thank you. Uh, We've talked about this idea of being a partner church and uh, how can churches and friends help make this dream come true? And tell us, what does it mean to be a partner church?
2: Well, I know the idea of partnering as a church with other parts of the world is not new, but this concept is that there'll be a formal relationship where a church in the United States and a specific church, like the pastor that you just heard, In Zambia, for three years, we'll partner together and do three things. I hope you picked that up in his speech: you pray, work, and give. Now the Africans have said, "We can work a lot because we're here," and they are now doing that. In the hot summer sun, they're they're digging ditches uh, to put in the walls of of the campus. But they also are giving, and they realize that they can't give as much as some churches in the United States. But they're giving and they're praying daily that like God will work a miracle. So you hopefully will, I know you're going to sign a, an agreement, a partnership to work together. Hopefully you'll send people, just as you sent them with Poetis, you'll send them to Zambia to work on this university to make it happen as well as to give and to pray. So that is the, that's the concept. The most immediate need, there are at least two. One, I continue to work to find money to build the buildings. And you would imagine that's very, very important. I was able to get a major donation already for the first building, but working hard now on the second building, which will have a library, will have a computer uh, center, and also have classrooms and offices. When we have that, then we can work with the uh, government to get approval for the university. So some of those needs are the ones that uh, that I would uh, specify at this point.
0: Very good. Thank you. Now, this last question, so you've had a life in Christian education. You've been a professor, a graduate dean, an academic vice president, a president, a chancellor, now president uh, emeritus of Indiana Wesleyan University. In your retirement years, somewhere over the age of 70, I'm guessing, based on comments you've made, True. Tell us a little bit about why you're not just relaxing at home mm-hmm. with the grandkids and enjoying time without the stresses of work or service. Like you, I've been with you a lot over the last couple of days. <laughs> you seem very in- energized uh, and committed to this dream. So tell us a little bit about what your why is for this.
2: I've always been driven by purpose for making a difference, to changing the world for Christ. I've been driven by status, not been driven by money, but driven trying to make a difference. And when I saw this particular project, if you will, this dream in Africa of starting a university, since my background is higher ed, and I understand what it means to make a university take place, uh, I understand the fundraising and the curriculum development and the accreditation, I felt that my background was uniquely prepared me at this point in my life to devote my final years to make a difference, to make this happen. The Zambians want it to happen. They're fully behind it, but there is a lot of moving parts, and I'm hoping that my experience will make that happen. And the reason I'm doing it is purpose. It's given me a new energy on life, and as long as God gives me health and strength, uh, I will continue to help with Africa, Westland University in some capacity. Very soon, we hope that the Zambians will take complete control of the university. It's, first of all, God's university, It's the Zambians University. I'm just coming alongside to be helpful. Uh, And I know that at some point I'll I'll move away. But I'm hoping that as we look down and we look forward and we look back, that we'll see God's hand. And I'm I'm just so grateful that God has chosen me to be used by him at this particular time in Zambia. I've been going to Zambia for the last over 10 years. Uh, I've been there 18 or 19 times. I go every other month now for three weeks. And I can tell you that that long flight, I know Rick and others understand, doesn't get any easier the older I get. But I'm committed to making, doing my part to make this happen. And I'm excited and energized, and I ask that you will pray for me. I'm so excited that you will be a partner church. I'm looking for 20 initial partner churches in the States and 20 in Zambia to work together to help make this happen.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Will you join me in giving him a, a thank you for being here today? And As we bring this service to a close, this sermon to a close in particular, I think this illustrates in great detail why this matters so much, that the kingdom mission is a global mission. And... Uh, Henry's going to be staying with us after the service. So if you haven't registered for our missions lunch after the 1030 service, uh, stick around or go out and come back. But come back to the youth room uh, after the second service around noon. We'll be getting started. He'll be sharing in more detail and answering questions and letting you know more specifically ways that you can be a part or be a partner with this. It's never too late to join the kingdom mission here on earth and so as we land the plane here I want to encourage you to close your eyes every single one of you and I want you to think of one person that you could tell about the love of Jesus one person that you could invite to church one person that you could invite to coffee or to lunch and I want you to think about that person I want you to picture them and I want you to pray for them as we close in prayer together. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that your kingdom mission is a global mission, that it came to reach each of us who have responded in faith to Christ, who are living in the kingdom of God. And we pray for these these faces that we hold in our minds, dozens of faces being called to attention here in this room. We pray for open doors. We pray for the ability to see as you see, to see those opportunities. Lord, if we viewed evangelism as an event, help us to break down those walls and to see it as a lifestyle, an opportunity. That like this woman at the well, we would go into our world, into our village, into our community, into our neighborhood, into our families or our workplaces. And we would say to those, even those who maybe we don't have a strong connection with, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Come and see the man who saw me. Come and hear the good news. Lord, we know your kingdom mission is a global mission. Help us to make your mission our mission. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.